Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Welcome to The Tonight Show. Inflation laid bare in the construction sector. Astronomical prices for housing supplies mean the cost of homes are staying at Celtic Tiger era levels. Where we're seeing labour inflation of about 15% in construction and in materials input inflation, if you like, somewhere between 40 and 50% when it comes to supplies. That doesn't bring certainty. We'll have more with on this with our panel. Also, the Leaving Cert kicks off tomorrow with students going back to the traditional model after a tumultuous two years. There is more concerns around the fact we are the first Leaving Cert class to sit, to sit the full Leaving Cert since 2019 without the comfort of predicted grades. And still in the job, for now, Boris Johnson faces his cabinet after winning a vote of confidence in his leadership. And we're able now to draw a line under the issues that our opponents want to talk about, and we're able to get on with talking about what I think the people in this country want us to talk about, which is what we are doing uh, to help them. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. tonight with one of the biggest issues facing the country. It's no secret that house prices are sky high, but a new report lays bare why they look set to stay that way for another while. It's all down to building costs. Steel is over 40% more expensive now than it was early last year, and metal isn't far behind. And cement is almost 15% more costly. Even already this year, in the five months, five, six months up onto this year. So we could be looking at 20 to 30,000 on your typical home. But as we say, it's very difficult to pinpoint that at the moment because we're receiving weekly increases from members. Well, I'm joined in studio by Mick Clifford, special correspondent at the Irish Examiner, Senator Malcolm Byrne from Fianna Foyle, and Sinn Féin TD Matt Carthy. And I'm joined on Skype this evening by Kevin James from the Society of Chartered Surveyors Ireland and Lorcan Allen, business editor at the Business Post. You're all very welcome to the programme. And Mick, I'm going to um, start with you. Look, it's not great news for anybody looking to try and get on that housing ladder. Uh, prices were already incredibly high right across the country. Yeah, Kira, there's no question it's very bad news. Um, I mean, even someone there from the Chartered uh, Surveyors uh, did a big survey two years ago and it was nearly 50% was down to um, construction costs and, and, and much the same. Uh, the, the other side of that margin is you, you, the likes of land uh, margins. You know, every builder has to have a margin. But VAT and other charges, uh, connection levies, all that type of thing. So you have to wonder... 
is that the only place that advances can be made in trying to keep the prices down? Because construction costs to the largest extent are beyond anything the government can do because, you know, they're international and that sort of thing. So it's a question of, are there other things they can do in order to tackle the prices? There seems to have been with this government and its successors only one way of coming at this, and that has constantly been to see how exactly uh, those who are building the houses can be helped out to build them at that high cost. And it, you'd wonder, why aren't they attacking other aspects to it in order to try and bring the, the, the price some way down or at least keep it some way stable at a time when the materials end of things, there's very little they're going to be able to do about it. Because we had hoped, hadn't we, Lorcan, that those prices would begin to stabilise because finally we were beginning to see some supply coming on board, supply in pretty good volumes in comparison to what we've seen over the last couple of years. Yeah, that's right, Kira. There uh, certainly had been some signs that maybe supply chains were starting to normalise as we were coming out of COVID-19. But if you look at what's happened over the last number of months, obviously the, the terrible situation in Ukraine has had a really big impact on supply chains. Ukraine is also a very large exporter of PVC. It, it's a large manufacturer of concrete and other material products like that. So that's obviously affecting the construction industry acutely. But then you also have what's happening in China, where... Uh, the Chinese government are continuing to pursue a kind of a zero COVID policy. Shanghai was locked down for large periods um, up until recently. And I, I'm sure a lot of your viewers would have seen those images of the port of, of Shanghai, where there was boats stranded uh, waiting for essentially weeks uh, to get in and unload their cargo. And, and the volume of boats that were stuck there meant there was no supply moving back this direction into, into Europe or into the US. And that sort of, um, I suppose, restarted the, the supply chain problems that we're seeing in, in the construction industry, but in other industries as well. And it's certainly, you know, if it, when things were looking like they were about to start normalizing in supply chains and prices coming down and supply catching up with demand, now we're kind of back to square one in many ways. And we've seen those prices start to pick up month on month again. And it was interesting, there was some CSO figures released, I think, at the end of last week that was looking at... Um, uh, the supply of houses coming on to the market. And we weren't actually back to pre-pandemic levels yet, were we? We were still quite a way off those, despite yeah, what the government said about supply improving. Yeah, we're, we're still a little bit off. Of course, now, this is the first year where the construction industry has had a full run at uh, building. It's It's been hit by lockdowns over the course of the last two years. The forecast is that uh, the construction industry will deliver about 25,000 homes this year. Uh, now, the government's target is to get that up to 33,000, 35,000 homes a year um, uh, on the supply side over the coming, uh, over the coming years. Um, and for 2023, as, as that construction industry ramped up supply, it was forecast that we could be looking at 28 to 30,000 homes. What I'm hearing from some of the people in the industry is that that figure doesn't look as likely as it was, particularly for 2023, 24 now. And they're thinking that maybe there could be as little as 20,000 new homes delivered in Ireland in, 20, in 2023 because of the inflation, the cost inflation that builders and some projects are essentially being the pause button has been put on them because of the volatility that's out there in markets right now. Um, Kevin James, I'm just wondering uh, in terms of pricing, what impact uh, the volatility and the uncertainty and, of course, the increase in these construction costs. In terms of pricing, what is it having on the market? Um, I suppose it's really affecting the confidence in, in the market to, I suppose, continue to price projects. You know, what we're seeing on the ground is there's two distinct 
differences between the private sector and the public sector. And the public sector, I suppose, to some extent, is burdened by public procurement versus more flexibility in the private sector. But you know, the private sector is also has to address what the constraints for the funding institutions are in terms of making sure that they're putting forward viable projects. So the, within the SESI, we're we're seeing you know a sort of a, a, a really our our members are struggling to make their projects make their clients' projects viable at this moment. Like we we had the I suppose that we had a position where we put, we we tabled a report to the housing committee in the Oireachtas there at the end of May, and I think you know whilst the challenges and the with inflation are well documented. We also have to recognise that we're trying to find some solutions, and within the SESI, you know, the working group came to the Oireachtas with a number of short, medium, and long-term, you know, uh, op options for consideration. And I think the main thing is is how do we find solutions in the industry to reduce construction costs because inflation is going to remain at you know, at, as I was, they're, they're discussing these at rampant levels at the moment. So we know if we're pricing materials and labour, what we need to be looking at is how we're addressing the risk for the contractors, how the procurement of these, you know, whether it's high density housing or low density housing, uh, and where those particular projects are located. So we, we look at contractors' margins, we look at risk, and we look at the pricing, because there's accusations out there at the moment where contractors are and, and material building providers are seen to be profiteering. And when, you know, as quantity surveyors, our job is to be that interface between the clients and the contractors and, and achieve value for money for the, I suppose, for the consumer. Um, but one of the recommendations we made, Claire, I suppose, several recommendations was about looking at pausing increases in fees for development contributions. We looked at Irish Water, looking at those particular charges that are burdened are burdening the viability of projects at the moment. All right, Kevin, just before I suppose, I suppose before we look at some of the solutions, I just want to look at what the impact uh, of these rising construction costs are having on the cost of a home. And um, the Construction Industry Federation today, we're talking about €30,000 extra in your average family home. Does that seem about right to you? I, I think it's difficult to say because, you know, when you, when you look at homes, um, I suppose I, I heard James Benson's view there in terms of the impact and the costs. And I think a lot of it comes down to, I suppose, the characteristics of the development. I'm not saying he's incorrect, but we are seeing and we're witnessing over the last six months massive spikes in material price inflation. But whether that translates to 30 or 40,000 euros on a particular home, I'm not quite sure because we haven't done that research yet. I just want to go to our panel now. Uh, Matt, we don't know, is it exactly 30,000 or not uh, on the cost of your average uh, home uh, for your average family out there? But look, we'd hoped, hadn't we, after waiting for so long, that as supply started to improve, we might see some stabilisation of these prices. And that no longer seems to be the case. But is it beyond the government's control? Well, in the first instance, I think it's important to say that stabilisation in terms of the private market isn't good enough for most ordinary workers because they weren't able to afford the homes at the prices that they are currently on the market. And that's why we have consistently said the government need to provide more genuinely affordable homes right across the board. Yes, government are limited in terms of what we can do in terms of the international price of steel um, and other materials, whether it be con concrete. I think on the first instance, we can do more to increase um, supply in areas like timber, you know, alternatives such as hemp and things like that. But that will be minimalistic in terms of um, in the me medium term. Um, the Housing Committee, as was pointed to, are currently deliberating all of these areas. And I think it's important that they do that work. Um, I know from speaking to the Sinn Féin members on that committee, they want to ensure that they do a thorough 
job, but they want that uh, to comp compile a report um, fairly quickly. I think it's important then that government actually heed that because they haven't been heeding much else in terms of um, spiralling costs in, in, in other areas up, on, up until now. Um, but it's interesting just seeing up to now the work of that committee and the stakeholders that they have been meeting. They've been talking about you know, the challenges that delays in planning in relation to judicial reviews, um, issues in relation to the cost of actually finance and the fact that home financing Ireland yeah. isn't in a position to provide um, funding to the type of developers it was initially in, um, intended to, uh, i.e. small and medium-sized developers. So there are areas in which improvements can be made. Do you think um, there's an issue, um, as Kevin James was pointing out there, he said there's not, there's no element of profiteering uh, going on in terms of those who are uh, developing or those who are supplying materials. Would you agree with that? There's no profiteering there? Well, the difficulty is, and we've seen this back to the Celtic Tiger era, when funds are directed um, towards developers, they take the market price at the end of, at the end of the day. So for us, um, public money should be directed towards actually delivery of affordable homes to those who are purchasing them. We, of course, that the price that the state pays for them has to recognise the real cost of actually um, providing them. But at the end of the day, what people who are watching this programme, the people who are most intently um, concerned, are those people who currently have no prospect of ever owning their own home as long as the um, policies that have been in place for the last two decades are continually pursued. Do you accept, uh, Malcolm, what uh, Laura Allen was saying there is that, you know, the government's ability to ensure that supply increases is going to be um, severely restricted here, particularly if some projects now have been taken off the boil or, as Lorcan said, been put on pause uh, as construction costs continue to spiral. Uh, well, it, well, it is the case. Let me just address one or two of, of, of Matt's points and, and then come directly to your point. I think it, it, it's unfair to say that the government hasn't provided money uh, to be able to support social affordable housing. A record €4 billion uh, Euro budget was provided uh, this year, way ahead of anything that any of the opposition parties called for in their alternative budget. So let, let's put that, uh, you know, to canards, to bed. Hang, hang, well, I'll tell you where the houses are. In terms of on the supply side and a lot of the measures that, that we talked about, we did have... Matt, 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 Matt yeah. can, I, can I make the point? Um, in, in terms of the numbers, and Norkin Allen outlined those, in terms of the actual figures, the number of first-time purchases in the year to March 2022 was a record 15,065. That's a record uh, number. The number of new residential units that were completed. Okay. And uh, this is important because I think, there, you know, there's an impression because a lot of where the challenge was going to be reached was on the supply side. Because if we had a greater supply of houses, that, that would mean that, that more would be supplied. There were over 22,000 But do you houses. accept that supply now is compromised so there is, there is because of the rising so, cost of so construction? Here's, here's the question around what is it that government can do? And, and Mick is correct when he said, look, there's very little that government can do with regard to external factors. And... You know, the, the, we, we, we heard from the earlier contributors where we talk about double-digit increases in the prices of timber and steel and so on. So there are a couple of things that government uh, can do. There is a new framework uh, where it comes to public contracts where, uh, you know, a, a quantity surveyor will come in and will show, look, the cost of this public contract, and this includes, by the way, around public housing, uh, has increased by a certain amount. There's been an agreement on the part of government that there will be a 70 to 30 uh, burden sharing, 70% borne by the government, 30% borne... That's uh, for existing by, projects. That's for, that's for existing projects. But that's, 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 that, that, though, is, is something that is, uh, that is significant. What is also going to happen this month, because one of the issues in a number of parts of the country are questions around density, because some of the density guidelines 
aren't allowing houses to be built. And this comes to some of the questions around land use. Uh, the planning guidelines are going to be put out for public consultation this month. It's going to be a short process. I think that's something that developers uh, are, are, are also raising. The, the ultimate challenge, though, and I know this from talking to people who have been able to draw down a mortgage for whatever level, figuring that this will be able to, to cover the cost of their home, and now, because of construction inflation, uh, that they're seeing the, you know, the prices going up. I, I, I am aware, and I think one of the issues that will okay. be considered is around the VAT and those charges. But our concern is that if there is any reduction in VAT, it must be a benefit to the consumer. And the problem, as we've seen with hotels, uh, is even though we've a special VAT rate there to help the tourism industry, it doesn't that hasn't necessarily been have an effect. So, okay, so just to go back to, to, the consumer. to um, Kevin James there, what do you think some of the solutions are to these rising construction costs if we want to try and stabilise prices or indeed, as Matt says, bring prices down a bit? I suppose, first, Claire, I, I, so, I have genuine concerns, I suppose, with the trend of inflation at the moment for the, the, the government's housing for all plan. I think the point was made earlier about, you know, not necessarily this year, but it's next year and the year after. And, you know, speaking to some clients in the industry, particularly approved housing bodies or the Land Development Agency, you know, they're, they're tendering projects at the moment. And they're seeking prices from the contracting industry, which is probably potentially going to set a new benchmark for costs. And what message is that sending to the industry? I suppose in, in relation to the public sector and the government are, you know, I suppose fighting a, a number of issues in the industry, whether it's MICA or the re, re, retrofitting program. So there's a lot of potential work in the pipeline, which is actually, you know, increasing. The, the pressure on the capacity in the market to respond in conjunction with rising materials. I think you know, when we look at potential solutions, the, the, the biggest issue for me is really, we've talked about the planning process, accelerating the pro planning process by putting additional resources into local authorities to make sure that they can make decisions in a timely manner. We talked about you know, pausing the increases for development contributions, because at the moment, some of those development contributions are index linked and with higher inflation becomes higher costs and, and, and that affects the development appraisal for, for certain projects. Irish Water, we, okay. we looked at the connection charges. Um, and the public procurement reforms. We've also asked the government to look at public procurement and introduce reforms that, that balance the risk between the contractor and the client All right. in a fair and equitable right. Okay, I just want to go back to the panel here. Mick, uh, I think sometimes when we talk about um, property and construction prices, we tend to think of the developers and the builders, but there's lots of ordinary people, isn't there, out there who are affected by this? People who are looking to renovate a house, people who are looking to try and trade up, people perhaps who are trying to bring a vacant house back onto the market. What's, what's there to support them? That's it, you see. I, I mean, the whole thing comes back to the very basic thing, and that is, at the moment, it is not possible. It would certainly appear from everything we're told, it is not possible to build housing units that are affordable to the average worker who could buy them before. And no matter how, we keep coming back to that again and again, and what ways there are to make that some way affordable. The government's latest scheme, this thing of giving developers up to 140 grand. This is this Creek yeah. Conaghy scheme that yeah. was so I, widely well, criticised. I, I don't know anybody who thinks that's a good idea. And then you have situations like we're, we're talking about public procurement and the planning process, which is a huge thing. But we're at this stage of the crisis and to be talking now about speeding up planning, about a, a, a more expedient way of doing public uh, procurement, that sort of thing, it's, it's way behind. Like, the focus has always seemed to be in the wrong place in terms of bridging that gap of affordability for people that these units are able to be built 
uh, in an affordable manner. And another element of that, of course, is that the vast majority of apartments, for instance, that are being built at the moment are built to rent. So none of those are for sale for young people who want to buy homes. All so right. there's a hell of a lot there to, to get through one way or the other. We're going to have to leave it there for now. Uh, we're going to take a short break break. My panel will be staying with me and thank you to my Skype guests as well. Uh, after the break, we're going to be discussing the Leaving Cert, which begins tomorrow and is back to its more traditional format. You're very welcome back. Well, COVID disrupted pretty much all parts of daily life for the best part of two years. But as cases subside, society is slowly getting back to some sort of normality. The latest group to feel that return will be leaving cert students. They begin exams in the morning. And Ashley Nikushla has been taking a look at how they've been preparing. The countdown is on. Tomorrow is D-Day and for the first time since the pandemic hit, sixth-year students will sit the traditional written Leaving Cert exams. There will be no calculated grades. For the students at Rathoth College in County Meath, they're anxious to get started. I'm quite nervous for tomorrow. I have English paper one. I'm just hoping everything I want to come off comes off. I would like to do radiography in UCD or physiotherapy. They're my top two. I'm planning on doing quantity surveying in TUD. That's my first choice. Yeah. It's about 4.10, so I should be okay. Yeah, I think I've put in all the work, so I've done all I can. In 2020, when COVID hit and schools closed for three months, the Leaving Cert results were based on teacher assessment only. Last year was a hybrid year, students having the choice of sitting exams in some or all of their subjects or else taking calculated grades. It's been a difficult two years for this year's students. Senior cycle has not been straightforward as a result of the pandemic. Adjustments have been made to the exams this year to compensate for this. Greater choice on the papers, more time, and in some subjects, less material to cover. This is our largest exam centre. Ashley, this is going to be catering for 41 students. Last minute advice from teachers and principals, always welcome. The work has been done now at this stage. I think what's really important maybe this evening is to look at the exam papers from past years, look at the sample papers that have been given out this year and look at those as a roadmap, as an example of how the paper is structured, what it's going to be like and make sure that they take their time, go through that in detail so they know what's going to come um, for them tomorrow. Again, the, the structures of the papers don't change, it's just the content. So knowing that structure gives you a good roadmap and helps you with your timings. Approximately 63,000 students around the country are counting down the final hours before they pick up their pens. Some of these students spoke to us to voice their thoughts ahead of the first day. I'm feeling a little bit nervous but well prepared. I think that the changes made because of Covid are quite fair. It gives us a really, really good chance and it's given us the chance to kind of cover all bases that we need to cover before the exams. The only thing that I am concerned about and wary of is the fact that we don't know when we're getting results. So we don't even know the implications of that yet, what it's going to do for the CEO, how it's going to be handled. There is, of course, a lot of anxiety around points, especially after last year's controversy and how the papers may go on the day for us. There is more concerns around the fact we are the first Leaving Cert class to sit, to sit the full Leaving Cert since 2019, 
without the comfort of predicted grades and how we will perform in comparison to the last two years. Going into my exams, I'm fairly cautiously optimistic. I've got a really good timetable. I only have... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. have one day where I have two exams at the same day and yeah I'm just looking forward to getting it over and done with I've done a bit of study maybe could have done more but bring it on with the exceptions that have been made to the paper and with the reducing content it is sort of the fear is on our mind whether the questions will be harder whether the paper itself will actually be a more difficult paper than the years before um an issue that we see is that we don't know when our results are coming out the examinations will be held in 5,500 centres and schools across the country, with the Leaving Certificate running until the 28th of June. But there are issues that are still causing concern for the students. The one thing Leaving Cert students don't know at the moment is when they will get their results. Despite calls from politicians and those in education for the date to be made known to them as soon as possible, the decision is made by the State Examinations Commission and it is an independent body. One of the reasons that there is no results date is due to the fact that there is a second sitting of the Leaving Cert in July for any student affected by COVID in June. There's no way of knowing how many students will have to do the resits. The delay in results may also mean that the start date for students hoping to begin college could also be pushed out, making planning difficult, especially for those who have to get student accommodation. The Leaving Cert exams get underway with English Paper 1 tomorrow morning and Home Economics in the afternoon. Junior Certificate students also start their state exams tomorrow. Nick Clifford, Malcolm Byrne and Matt Carthy are back with me and I'm also joined by Colman Nocter, Child and Adolescent Psychoanalytical Psychotherapist. Uh, thank you very much for coming into us. Let's talk, I suppose, of the, about the last two years and the psychological impact that's going to have had on this year's Leaving Search students. They've been through a lot. Yeah, they have. I mean, I, I think the feedback from, from this year is the anxiety is kind of ratcheted up again. I, I think the two years of the predicted grades had a fallback, but at this... 
it, it again comes all down to one exam, with the exception of orals and maybe a couple of practical percentages. Um, there was a kind of a, a parachute pack with the, the predicted grades that they had. Uh, the students this year, I feel, are under a lot of pressure. They also have had a disrupted year. Um, a, a lot of the, the reports in autumn time was that they were trying to catch up on curriculum. So they were getting hours and hours of homework around when, when schools reopened. Um, many of them describing being overwhelmed. Um, I, I still think they have some dispensation should be made for them. Um, and and you know, the, the more choice, longer time. Um, for me, I, I thought there could have been a little bit more done on that. Um, but the Leaving Cert gets more pressured year on year. Um, Does it, Coleman? Yeah. I, I read that in your notes. Do you yeah. think it has become more difficult and more intense for students? And what are you putting that down to? I don't think the exam has gotten more difficult. I think the expectation around it has. So you, we now live in a world of, of social media. So we have a hyper-comparative culture. You know everything that everyone else is doing and your results are going to be published on the family WhatsApp and everyone's good. So there's more pressure when there's an audience. The other thing is, again, you know, the, Parents see in education as an investment. You know, they've put money into grinds and Irish college and all this sort of stuff, and this is your time to deliver. And I think young people feel the pressure of, of parents as well. Um, and there just seems to be a, a, a drive of, you know, I, I remember five, 10 years ago, 350, 400 points was considered a very good leaving cert. For some reason, the bar is now up around 450, 500. And that's not in relation to an inflation in points. That's an inflation of expectation. And there's this view that everyone has to go to third level. Everyone has to go to college. We have the highest numbers of college attenders in the EU. Um, and, and again... And I, do you I just, think that's wrong? Do you think we have the wrong attitude to that? I, I would think there should, there should be more options around, I suppose, school leavers and what you do. You know, I, 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 again, I, I've seen lots of people go to university and be unhappy. I've seen very few people attend a PLC and leave it. You know what I mean? From the point of view of... There is a snobbery around that, of course. Um, but again, uh, I think for young people, being asked at 18 years of age to make a decision on the rest of your life is huge. Uh, and I think the pressure on them to perform that in a three-hour exam, where it could go wrong for them, and, and that's, of course, where their anxiety is at. But um, I would have thought with COVID we had a pause that we could have restructured something, um, but it seems like uh, it's, it's back to the same old, same old a little bit. Yeah, do you think we made a mistake? We had this opportunity, perhaps it was the time to even move towards the hybrid model. Oh, completely. We let a, a, a good crisis go to waste, if you want to put it that way. I mean, culturally, we're all programmed to expect believing, and, you know, we've all been through it. But when you stand back and even looking at the VT there, it's insane. It's basically telling young teenagers that all their education is going to come down to these couple of days when they're going to have to have retained everything and regurgitated in a particular way. And what exactly does that say about their capacity to analyse things, to, to follow any kind of a career path. And as Coleman was saying, the whole thing now is points. It's all mm. points, points, points. And that's the thing that matters. I mean, when you stand back and look at it, I think the thing is insane. And we've been moving slowly towards a more hybrid model. But the, the pandemic was an opportunity to speed up. Now, there are various interests or teachers' unions have some issues and some of those are understandable and what have you. But the fact that we're taking that long to change it, the Leaving Cert was brought in initially to ensure that it was fair to everybody. And that was grand at the time. And a lot of people think it is a fair example. Well, well, I think it's completely unfair, to be honest with you, Kieran. now. But going back 50 years, OK, that was understandable at the time it was brought in to be fair. It's no longer fair. I mean, where, what kind of school you go to, where you're from, whether you get grinds, all of those things feed into the thing now. There has to be a way 
to measure people in such a way that you don't put kids through that sort of thing at the end of their time in school. Uh, Malcolm, a good crisis gone to waste. Well, first of all, I think it's important that we wish all of those who are sitting, the junior cert, the leaving cert and the leaving cert applied well tomorrow. And all those students have come and said, you know, they've gone through two very difficult years uh, and young people suffered in many ways more than a lot of other uh, generations. I and think many of them wanted the hybrid model this year. Yeah, and, and I've got to say that it's brought to the fore the student voice and I think that case was very effectively argued by the other second level students union. But it wasn't heard. Well, well, actually, I, 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 would dis, I would disagree with you in that um, there are partners in education uh, and I think all of those were engaged in the process. The student voice was heard in that there was, and one of your contributors pointed out that the Leaving Cert this year is uh, different to 2019 and before in that there's far greater choice recognising uh, you know, the challenges of the previous two, two, two years that are there. There is that option in terms of the reset and in terms of the cases of you know, COVID and bereavement and so on. Um, I will say that for those students uh, that there are far more higher education places available but there are also far more places on PLC and apprenticeship programmes. There are also far more routes into higher education. So do you disagree then with, with the, the, Coleman Octra? Do you that no, I, sort of I, all this pressure I, to get points I, and go I to third agree. level institution? I do agree we, do, we need to address um, the, the questions of pressure and, and, and all around the whole social media space. But what I will say is, is that in terms of the opportunities that are now presented to this year's leaving certs, and there are in fact an additional thousand higher education places in some of those most sought after courses being provided. The other thing is, and to follow on, okay. because this is important in terms of the Leaving Cert reforms, which Norma Foley has announced, that all the, the reforms that are being planned over the next few years, it's not all about the pressure coming in on the final right. exam. It's, it, it has, but it, it's... You've got, right, to, remember, you've got to remember that the... the Malcolm, I just want to let Matt in the, there. Where the teaching unions were objecting okay. to Matt. them. Yeah. See, part of the problem was last year was a momentous model. It wasn't perfect, of course, but we were clearly on the right track. And what, unfortunately, Norman Foley fell down on was she retracted you know, essentially back to where we were in 2019. So it's I think it was... the same exam uh, as 2019. OK, well, I, it, the, same, the same principle, the same concept. Uh, and there are improvements. There are some adjustments. There are um, improvements, but they are regressions in terms of where we were last, last year. So I think there's... Now, I will, say, I will say this just to all of those who are sitting there, they're leaving, leaving cert exams and going back to Coleman's point. The people who, in the next generation, will have every entitlement to be snobbish are those people who go into trades right now because that is where Absolutely. money is going to be made, going back to our previous... Um, the, the if you listen to part one, that's um, for so, sure. So, you know, for those people, I do think that there is, there is um, every reason to be relaxed, to do their best, but um, certainly but you, to approach this with um, a view to there are many options. You that wanted are the hybrid model. You still supported the hybrid model, but do you not accept that there was real difficulty with that because we've seen such serious grade inflation and points inflation over the last couple of years that perhaps wasn't sustainable? And that's why I acknowledge that there were challenges, absolutely, and there were areas that needed to be addressed. And the point I made and how was are we that going to get around well, last that? year we were on the right track. So what we need to do is address the, and iron out the, the reasons why we had... Um, grade inf in inflation. Some would argue we actually had a more a balancing of grades in terms of some of the class and geographical issues that yeah. Mick, was, Mick was raising. And um, so I genuinely think we were on the right track. Students said 
that it worked for them. Um, even those who ended up having um, some challenges. But is that not what end. is included in Leaving Cert reform? That it is going to be more continuous assessment and less sort of focus on this one big exam? Is some of the changes that were required delivered much more slowly than needed to happen? We could have actually, we could have had um, this year an improvement upon last year's and a uh, system that would have been embraced by students, by teachers, by okay. society um, at large, and we would have ended up having a, a better rounded sorry, society as uh, a result. Coleman, there will be those watching who'll say, look, Stress is part of everyday life. You know, you do your leaving cert, you go to college, three or four years later you could find yourself in a job and nobody makes allowances for your stress then. Is it not very important to try and, you know, build resilience in our young people? Does that not, um, you know, get achieved through the leaving cert? Not really when it's overwhelming. The resilience comes first and then you cope with adversity. Adversity doesn't create resilience. You know, and that's a big mis You know, to treat people really difficult and they become resilient. Leaving cert reform isn't a new issue. My mother's in her 70s. She still has leaving cert dreams. This has been going on for a while. We need to, to look at it. Anything that comes down to a three-hour exam that decides your future in one manner of learning. There's lots of students have really skill sets that aren't necessarily in an exam format and aren't exactly, you know, I suppose, shown in that way. We need to just, we, it needs to be start from scratch. It's not about tinkering around the edges. It is about reform. And, and for me, it shouldn't come down to that. There should be, a, a, like last year, continuous assessment. As, as Mick says, that's where we're going, but we're slow in getting there. And I suppose one of the things about the Leave and Start reform, Malcolm, um, there are improvements, but it doesn't do anything for the points race, does it? Well, it, it doesn't address that issue. It, there, 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 well, it, it, it doesn't in, in a sense that the fact that it won't all now be dependent on that one terminal exam, that it will recognise, you know, the, the continuous assessment work in, 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 uh, in the run-up to that period. And by the way, there's still, you know, there, there's still hurdles right. to jump through with the teaching unions. I do think it is important to stress, though, that there are a lot more opportunities. So for a student who, you know, the traditional Leaving Cert model may not be there. Yes, and Matt is right, the apprenticeship model. There are a lot of other ways if you want to go into higher education now than just the term Leaving Cert. Right. And to address the pressure, Mick, I'd hope you talk to your media colleagues okay. who in terms of their coverage, their coverage of the Leaving Cert is actually yes. part of the issue around the pressure yeah. that yeah. No, 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 except there is right. an element to that. We will uh, take note of that. Uh, we'd like to send our good luck to all of the Junior Cert and Leaving Cert uh, students tomorrow. It is not, of course, the be-all and end-all. My thanks to uh, Coleman Nocter, Mick, Malcolm and Matt will be staying with me and we're going to look at whether Boris Johnson has done enough to stay in power. Well, he is safe for now, but trouble is still brewing for Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson. He won a confidence vote from his own party, but uh, just over 40% of those MPs wanted him gone. He spoke to his cabinet earlier, and the talk was all about moving on. Thank you, by the way, everybody, for all your good work yesterday, because uh, which was a very important day, because uh, we were able now to draw a line under the issues that our opponents mm. want to talk about, and we're able to get on with talking about what I think the people in this country want us to talk about, which is what we are doing uh, to help them and to take the country forward. But moving on may be easier said than done. Earlier I spoke to journalist Ender Brady and I asked him about the mood in the Conservative Party today. 
Well, look, it's civil war inside the Conservative Party now, Kira. They're completely split. You've got 40% of the parliamentary party, 40% of Boris Johnson's MPs say they have no confidence in him as leaders. And the others are saying, and, and these are the ones who voted for him, primarily people who are on the government payroll, holding positions in cabinet, parliamentary secretaries, you know, people who are on the government payroll, ultimately they had to vote for him. And, and, and they're stuck with him now. And there's a big date looming. June 23rd, we have two by-elections coming up, one up in Yorkshire in a town called Wakefield and the other down in Devon, in, in Tiverton and Honiton, where the Conservatives have a majority of 24,000. And the whispers are that the polling has been absolutely appalling in both constituencies, and it looks like the Conservatives could lose both. And the problem they have, they're now stuck with Boris Johnson for at least another year. Yeah, do those rebels have another move in them? Are they plotting? What could it possibly be, Enda? Well, when you look at it, they've used up their Trump card. The best weapon they had was the vote, and it didn't work out. But they've got enough firepower still in reserve. So what you're going to see is you will see a lot of these MPs, and, you know, 40% is a huge chunk of his party, abstaining from key government votes. So legislation that might be brought forward, they just won't vote. They're going to do their utmost to undermine his leadership. And as much as he's a big character and a big political beast, he's in the fight of his life. He really is. I mean, you know Boris, you've known him and you've reported on him for a very long time. He is being called this lame duck prime minister. It's very clear he's not going to be the person who's able to unite the Conservative Party now. And the public mood, I would imagine, hasn't changed at all. Is he aware of all this? Does he feel, do you think, that his time is up, that it is a, you know, a, a matter of if, not when? Not at all. I mean, he's impervious to criticism. He has a skin like a rhinoceros. And you've seen the statements, you know, what he told Cabinet today, let's move on. I've won. He saw that as a resounding victory. There's not a shred of fibre in his body uh, that will ever, ever lean towards resignation. I mean, someone said to me the other day, have you seen the film with Sigourney Weaver in it where the alien is stuck to the spacecraft and when they eventually get it out, it's still clinging on outside? You do get the impression that if he ever does leave Downing Street, he will be holding on to the door handles and the door frames and someone will be trying to prise him off. That's what it's going to take. He is impervious to criticism. He listens to nobody. He has unbelievable self-belief, rightly or wrongly. And I think his critics would say that he's used up all his credibility now. Lockdown, the parties. And I think what really, really punched through for a lot of people in the past week, him being booed by a crowd of monarchists outside St. Paul's Cathedral. You know, these were people who'd gone there to see the royal family. These were not left-wing people. These were people who'd gone there, British traditionalists, to see the royal family and to cheer, and Boris Johnson got booed. So what will he do now, Enda? Will he try and sort of shore up that remaining support? Will he try and sort of buy that support? How will he go about uh, making sure that he doesn't lose any more? Couple of things. First off, you're going to see some policy that will appeal to the right wing of the Conservative Party. So expect some movement on the Northern Ireland Protocol imminently. There will be healthcare announcements, there will be housing policy announcements, including the right to buy. So people living in council houses can, will be offered a chance to buy their own home. He's trying to buy popularity and appeal to the right wing of the party. Secondly, 
it would not surprise me if there's some sort of a reshuffle in the coming days. You know, he had his spies out. He knows who backed him and he knows who didn't. And I would say there's one or two prominent people who may not be in their positions by close of play this week. You know, he will reshuffle his pack and he will beg and plead with the MPs. And he will point out, as he has done repeatedly, a lot of these MPs only won their seats in very difficult constituencies previously held by Labour two years ago because of Boris Johnson's ability to, to reach parts of this country that no Conservative leader ever has. Uh, fascinating stuff. We'll have to leave it there for now. Thank you, Ender. Thank you. Uh, Ender Brady there, my panel, is still with me. Uh, Mick, I don't know if you've digested the image of Boris Johnson as an alien on the side of a spaceship clinging on as he's pulled out of uh, number 10. I don't know if he's going to be pulled out anytime soon. And look, I suppose we're all fascinated by, by him, by his right. personality and, and what happens um, in Downing Street. But it has real implications here, doesn't it? Because he is under such pressure that he does need to buy support. And how will he go about buying support of hardline Brexiteers other than, you know, taking a very tough stance yeah. on the protocol? I mean, in one way, Keir, the man's a bit of a genius in one way. I mean, destiny would have had him perhaps as the editor of a satirical magazine or a stand-up comedian or somebody with his own comedy show. He'd, he'd be ideal for that. He's actually ended up being the Prime Minister of one of the biggest countries, one of the most developed democracies in the world, which is unbelievable achievement. But uh, and the other thing about him, uh, the, the defining thing about him is that the psychodrama that was, was uh, Brexit. Remember, this is the man writing his column, for which he was paid a quarter of a million a year, the night before declaring he wrote one column why I would vote for Brexit. He wrote another column why I would not, and he weighed up which one's going to serve my career better. That's what we're talking about. And similarly, you're talking about the hardliners and the protocol in that. The biggest stumbling block to the protocol of all is that the British Prime Minister is approaching it entirely with a view to how exactly it will impact on his personal career. Now, in all the time, you can go back to Lloyd George, uh, John Major, even Margaret Thatcher, any of them, at least they were coming from a position where they realised they had some duty, they had some way to approach things, irrespective of what their specific attitudes was. He doesn't this have man that. is approaching it entirely viewed through the lens of his career and his fate and whether he can cling on as Prime Minister. So we're hearing this evening that this legislation that uh, Liz Truss promised that would override parts of the protocol, uh, that it's going to be published, I think, on Thursday this week. <clears throat> Do you think that's part of the immediate response, let's buy the Brexiteers, let's get them back on site? Because oh, some no, of those yeah. have even spoken out against it. As well as distraction, because, I mean, the headline there is going to be that Britain moves ahead to break international agreements, to become a, a, a pariah state. And for, as for the hard Brexiteers, that element of them, and not all of them, were still behind them. That gives them a, a bit of red meat to cling on to, and uh, I, that's the way he's going. Yeah, and Simon Coveney, uh, earlier this morning, um, was speaking out and, you know, said he was worried that Johnson could take a tougher stance now on Brexit. And we hear the Taoiseach this evening even appealing to Boris Johnson to steady the ship. Is the government worried here? There, there's a very genuine worry. I mean, it's obviously a matter for the Conservative Party who they choose as their leader, but the decision to uh, proceed with the legislation that will unilaterally, uh, you know, renegotiate uh, the protocol is worrying. It will have serious implications for this island. Uh, obviously, it will present a lot of challenges. Uh, um, I, I think, in fairness, the, the Taoiseach and Minister Coveney, Marsevkovic, mm. everybody has said we're perfectly happy to sit down at the table to look at trying to manage some of the, the difficulties around this. 
Um, you know, there are very serious concerns. But a unilateral renegotiation of an international deal, we were fortunate when we had members of the US Congress over recently, I mean, they were saying, and this was both the Republicans and the Democrats, you know, you honour your international deals. And I'm sorry, as Mick said, if you break international law in that way, it will effectively make the UK a pariah state. Uh, uh, do you think there's any chance the DUP will go back into the Assembly here, back to the Executive, when they see this long-awaited legislation now published? Is, is that enough for them? Oh, I don't know. I think part of the difficulty in terms of re-establishing the Northern Assembly has been the fact that Boris Johnson has been so willingly eager to implicate um, the DUP to want to give a better term, um, despite the fact that the vast majority of people in the North oppose Brexit, support the protocol, want to see any changes being um, um, being carried out in a diplomatic um, right. um, pro proper procedures. Um, the DUP have been led to believe by right. none other than the British Prime Minister that there is an alternative that involves breaking okay. international law and that that's somehow even a possibility. All right, look, we have to leave it there. But from all of the late team here, good night, take care, and thank you to my guests and panel. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.